The Katie Swatis Social Justice Podcast is now available on iTunes and elsewhere with the award-winning adventure novel Irreversible Damage by J.L. Reese. The series is narrated by actor Mike Gomez. In this first book of a series on contemporary social justice activism, Katie learns that changes affecting her life were instigated by forces and people far removed from her and whose greed for a political and financial game means more to them than the lives they sacrificed along the way. Irreversible Damage, the Katie Swatis Social Justice Series, a novel by J.L. Reese, narrated by Mike Gomez. Chapter 6, La Ponderosa Mallory Ochoa's mom, Soko, was 21 when Miguel, her husband of two years, said, Let's move to the United States. My cousin, Jacinto, told me he has a job for me doing gardening, and I will make ten times more money than I make here as a teacher. Jacinto failed to mention to Miguel that the cost of living was eight times larger than in the Tapitlan. Jacinto and Miguel were cousins who grew up together. They loved each other like brothers, and they missed each other. Miguel recounted to Soko all the fantastic stories Jacinto, who had moved to the U.S. five years before, had told him. Miguel tried to convince Soko to move and spoke of the subject with great excitement. Mi amor, Jacinto told me that he drives an almost brand-new Ford Thunderbird, and you know how much I love that car. He has an apartment with a dishwasher and all the latest home appliances, and money to go to the movies every weekend. Doesn't that sound like a great life? But Miguel, I just finished my school teaching program, and I was so looking forward to starting teaching. Plus, Miguel, Cindy is just a one-year-old baby. I think we're okay here. Soco and Miguel lived in Tepatitlan, Jalisco, in central Mexico, and it was rural and beautiful. Cobblestone streets, green rolling hills, beautiful and colorful small homes. It was a quintessential Mexican small town. While most people were not wealthy there, they worked hard and made ends meet. The small town people were kind and hospitable, the food delicious, and every Sunday, the beautiful town square with its vast colonial church on one side and City Hall on the other, lit up with music, celebration, and dancing. The young men strutted around wearing their cowboy hats, while the women wore their Sunday dresses and promenaded around the large colonial iron kiosk or pavilion. The town followed a tradition that went back centuries. If a young man liked a girl, he would buy a red rose from the flower lady and bring it to the young lady, and if she likes him, she will accept it. Life in Tepatitlan was simple, but good. Miguel was relentless in his effort to convince Soko. But think about it. So many of our relatives have moved to the U.S., They all talk about how they are living the American dream. Plus, we will have so much family there. We will not be alone. Soko loved Miguel and trusted him. 
She knew he was a good man, and he would protect her. So, without fully considering it, she accepted. He moved first with the plan to have everything prepared for the arrival of Sokol and Cindy. Miguel's first attempt to cross the border failed, but the second time he made it. Miguel did not tell Sokol the horrors of the border crossing with the help of the coyotes, the human smugglers, who treat their cargo like animals. That experience would haunt Miguel, and later the same experience would haunt Soko for many years. After a year apart, Soko was happy to be reunited with Miguel in Phoenix, where he had rented a tiny apartment in La Ponderosa. Soko was ready to enjoy the American dream Miguel and Jacinto had promised. Her dreams were soon shattered. Life for people living in La Ponderosa was very different than life in Paradise Valley. The residents of La Ponderosa were 98% Mexican, and Soko was surprised to see all the signs in Spanish. On her second day at La Ponderosa, she went grocery shopping and saw on the street several unusually-looking men with crew cuts wearing long white stockings, long black shorts and bandanas, she thought it was some sort of funny costume for a party. Naive, she asked one of the men, ¿Para qué es el disfraz? What are you wearing a costume for? The man, a cholo, responded with an intense, menacing voice, saying in broken Spanish, Estúpida, cállate, o te va a ir mal. Don't be stupid, shut up, or you regret it. Soko was shocked and scared and went straight home. She did not buy groceries that day. When Miguel arrived back from work that night, she told him what had happened. Oh my God, those men are very dangerous. They are gang members, cholos, and you must avoid them at all cost. That made Soko even more scared. Soko would live scared at La Ponderosa for the rest of her life. La Ponderosa was a dangerous neighborhood, and neither the authorities nor the police seemed to care what happened there. Roads were run down, traffic signals and most walls were covered with some sort of graffiti, and street-cleaning trucks never went to La Ponderosa. The following day, Soko struck up a conversation with Helen, a kind neighbor who spoke broken Spanish. She looked about 70 years old and said she was born in Phoenix. Knowing Helen was a local and hoping she would have some experience, Soko asked Helen if she had some advice as to how to use her teaching credential to become a teacher. Honey, don't waste your time. Your credentials are useless here, and even if you have a credential, they'll never give you a job. If you have a Mexican accent, they won't give you a good job in Phoenix. Soko's throat tightened when she heard that and asked Helen, Who are they? Why don't they like us? Soko was a smart and attractive young woman, and in Mexico she would have had her pick of teaching jobs. Her two older sisters were excellent teachers, and she was confident that she would be a fantastic teacher. When Soko moved to the U.S., she assumed she would take a test and get a teaching credential. 
Helen was a Mexican-American woman who was raised during times of severe segregation and repression against Mexicans in Arizona. Her life experiences had forged a second-class citizen mentality, and she was pessimistic about the idea of life improving for Mexicans. The concept of moving up or improving was foreign in her mind. Helen was surprised Soko even asked, with such a pessimistic environment in Mexican-American neighborhoods, she was used to Mexican immigrants solely taking laborer jobs. Look, dear, it's better not even to try. You'll be disappointed. When I was young, I'd try to apply to nursing school, but they wouldn't allow me to go, so I got a job at a soap factory and worked there all my life. After the civil rights movement, things were slowly getting better for Mexicans here, but then Arpaio showed up and his campaign against Mexicans has been making things more difficult for us. That night, tears streamed down Soko's face as she recounted to Miguel her conversation with the older lady. Is it true that Americans don't want us here and I won't be able to become a teacher? Miguel was heartbroken from what he had learned over the past few months living in Phoenix, and he did not want to tell Soko. Mi amor, Americans really don't like it when we speak Spanish in front of them. Since I arrived here, I have been yelled at a couple of times for not being able to speak English clearly. Jacinto had learned English, so he talks to the clients, and I just smile. And we don't talk when people are around say that they don't get upset with us. Miguel's voice broke. Look, mi amor, Jacinto said that as long as we stay in the Mexican neighborhoods like La Ponderosa, we are fine and no one will bother us. So we cannot go anywhere else, asked Soco. By now, Miguel's spirit has started to break. He had been a spirited young man, attractive and prideful. But the moment he crossed the border, cramped like an animal into a truck, his self-worth diminished. Once he arrived, he was told by all his Mexican acquaintances that Mexicans were unwanted in the country and to stay away from white neighborhoods except for work. On one occasion, he decided to go explore the other side of town and go shopping for new jeans he needed. He ventured into the Phoenix Fashion Mall. Walking around the mall, Miguel saw lovely, clean shops, and the smell of perfume was everywhere. It did not look like the stores at La Ponderosa. He wore his faded Mexican clothes and knew little English. At every place he stopped to ask a question or try to shop, he would see people looking down at him, ignoring him, impatient with his inability to speak clearly, and more than once he was brutally asked to move out of the way. So we cannot go anywhere else? Soko asked again. Mi amor, why would we want to go to the Anglo side anyway? We don't speak English, and they don't like us on that side. We have everything here in La Ponderosa, and there are many other Mexican neighborhoods we can visit. Miguel could see the anguish on Soko's face, and it reminded him of how he felt 
the first few months after he arrived. Then to change the direction of the conversation, he said, Mi amor, I have great news. My Aunt Dolores is having a party this weekend, and she invited us. There, we will reconnect with so many of our family and friends from Tepatitlan. It will be a beautiful reunion. Soko's face showed a faint smile. That sounds good, honey. Thank you for working so hard to give us a better life. Miguel tried hard to paint the situation as rosy, but he started to question his decision of moving his family to this country. But it was too late. They had made this huge journey and sold everything. Going back was not an option. The party took place in another Mexican neighborhood, Buckeye, at Aunt Margarita's home. It felt like a party that would take place at Tapatitlan because of the mariachi music, the delicious Jalisco delicacies like carne en su jugo y birria, and the colorful table adorned with piñatas and traditional fruits. Soko had a lovely time reconnecting with friends and family she had not seen in years. Soko saw her cousin, Lucero, who she had not seen in ten years. Lucero was older than Soko and had moved to the U.S. many years before. Lucero had been la reina de Tapatitlan, the beauty queen of her town. She had moved to Phoenix with her husband, Eugenio, and Soko had not heard much about them in a long time, other than the usual lies Mexicans tell their relatives back home not to lose face, like, we're doing great and we have so many things here. Soko approached Lucero. My God, Lucero, you look great. Still the beauty queen. Lucero was flattered as she had gained quite a bit of weight and did not feel attractive anymore. Soko, wow, you have grown and you are quite the looker yourself, just like your mom. Lucero grabbed Soko's hands and raised them to expose Soko's lovely figure. I am so happy to see you here. Yes, I am happy to reunite with so many loved ones, but I have to tell you, there are so many things I'm finding out, which I didn't know before we moved here. I never knew Mexicans were so unwanted in Phoenix. Are you happy here? Honey, you get used to it. We learn to live separate from them. I rarely go to the Anglo side. While Lucero spoke, her nine-year-old son walked up and hugged her. Lucero hugged him back. David, this is your auntie Soco from Tepatitlan. Say hello. David was shy and only smiled. Okay now, go play with your friends, Lucero said, and he walked away. Soko was horrified when she saw David had a crew cut in white stockings with long shorts. She could not believe it. Without thinking, she whispered, Lucero, aren't you afraid people will think David is a cholo? This is how kids want to dress these days. I don't like it, but he really wants to dress like his older brother, Eugenio Jr. He's his hero. Lucero's eyes filled with tears. That junior is giving me such headaches. 
He is only fifteen, and he's gotten into trouble with the law already. I don't know what to do. Pues que Eugenio le dé sus riatazos. Then Eugenio should give him a whipping, like our parents used to do to us when we misbehave, said Soko. No, you can't do that here. If you discipline them, even with a little spanking, the neighbors will call the police on you. Lucero's body got stiff. Her eyes swelled. Last week, I got distraught with Eugenio Jr., and I was trying to pull his stupid oversized flannel shirt off, and he told me, Mom, if you pull my shirt again, I'm going to call the police on you, and they'll deport you. It breaks my heart that my son feels that being an American citizen gives him special powers over his own immigrant mother, Lucero cried. Soko's mouth dropped open, and she didn't say any more about the subject out loud, but she thought that she would never allow this to happen to her kids. Only a few years later, David would be shot and killed by a gangster's bullet. Soko saw Miguel from afar and caught up to him. Hi, my love. Miguel was already drunk and hugged and kissed her. Soko had been looking forward to seeing her other cousin Camila, but she was not there. Miguel, do you know why Camila and her husband Benito are not here? Miguel did not think before he answered and blurted out, Benito got deported last week. Soko's eyes widened and Miguel knew he had made a big blunder. Why didn't you tell me? Mi amor, I didn't want to stress you more. I knew that you were having such a hard time with this transition. I didn't want to add one more thing. What happened? This man, Sheriff Arpaio, has directed his police force to stop any person who looks Mexican and ask for their papers, especially if they are in the white neighborhoods. Benito was doing his gardening job and used the leaf blower in a white neighborhood. One of the neighbors got upset because of the noise and called the police. When the police arrived, they asked Benito for his papers, and he didn't have them. So they took him to jail. From there, they quickly deported him. But don't worry, honey. He'll be back soon. Oh, my God, this could happen to you any time. Soko was upset. Take me home. Trying to make as little commotion as possible, Miguel and Soko left the party. Once in the car, Miguel tried to calm Soko. Mi amor, don't worry. Jacinto and I have it down. We use the broom in the morning so the neighbors won't be upset with us. Jacinto and I are very careful. We do our job, talk as little as possible, and as soon as we are done, we come back to La Ponderosa. It will be okay. Are we in prison? Why did you bring me here? Soko stared out the window. We sold everything we had in Tepatitlan to move here. What are we going to do? I don't want to live like this. Mi amor, there are a lot of great things in this country. Give it time. Soon after, Soko became pregnant with Mallory, and the excitement of a new baby took away all the sour feelings. Life took its course, and both Miguel and Soko adapted to their environment. 
Miguel's spirit became increasingly more broken. While his clients smiled at him because of his good work, he could feel their disdain. Sometimes it was his imagination, but after feeling so unwanted for so long by his new countrymen, he lost his self-worth, started drinking heavily, and became extremely reclusive. Soka was very strong, and she never saw herself less than anyone else. She worked hard to give her daughters a sense of self-worth and hope for a better future. Both Miguel and Soko realized that the American dream was not for them to have, and in turn, they focused on the possibility that their daughters could achieve that dream. A year after Mallory was born, Soko decided to temporarily give up her dream of being a teacher, as she realized that with a growing family, she needed to work to complement Miguel's gardening income. Soko realized that she had to learn English, so she bought an English language system on CD and would walk around the house repeating the words every day. Mariquita, Jacinto's girlfriend, was a nanny in an affluent neighborhood. She got wind that a family next to hers was in need of a good nanny. Mariquita got Soko an interview at the Macintosh home by telling them that she was a teacher in Mexico. Up until her interview, Soko had barely ventured into the white side of Phoenix. Arpeo and his allies' efforts to segregate Mexicans and keep them in their neighborhoods by terrifying them had been very successful in Phoenix. In the almost two years since her arrival, Soko had not interacted with any people outside the Mexican neighborhoods, and she didn't look forward to doing so. She had only heard about how abusive, dismissive, and condescending they were to Mexicans, so she had no desire to get to know them. On the day of her job interview, Soko dressed in her best dress. It was a yellow sundress which showed her nice figure. Soko put makeup on as well to highlight her green eyes. She looked lovely. When Soko arrived at the Macintosh mansion, she was overwhelmed. The house was huge and very intimidating. Wow, this is how they live. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Anne opened the door with a kind smile. Come in, Socorro. I hear your friends call you Soko. May I call you Soko too? Soko nodded. By the way, my name is Anne. Soko made an effort to speak some English, although it was very broken. See, si. sorry, Jess, Miss Anne. I hear you were a teacher in Mexico. Did you bring those credentials with you? Jess, I have been here. With pride, she presented her teaching credential. Very nice. Even though I can't reach Spanish, if you don't mind, I would like to make a copy of it, okay? Jess, okay. So what classes did you teach in Mexico? I didn't get to teach. When I finished school, my husband Miguel and I moved here. Oh, okay. Do you have any children of your own? Yes, Miss Anne, too. Cindy and Mallory. I have pictures. Soko pulled it out of her wallet and showed a picture of family, the Ochoas, Miguel, Cindy, Mallory, and Soko, all dressed up for Mallory's baptism. 
nice-looking family. Your daughters are gorgeous. Soko smiled and felt good and proud. Thank you, Miss Anne. Then a four-year-old girl, holding the hand of a toddler, appeared, both with blonde hair and dressed in blue. Anne said, These are my kids, Jenny and Zachary. We call them Zach. Kids, say hello to Soko, your new nanny. Jenny approached Soko and instead of shaking her hand, gave her a hug. Soko's heart melted for those beautiful children. Wow, they seem to like you, Soko. They are lovely, Soko said as she hugged them back. Little Zach hugged Soko and the great bond started immediately. He did not want to let go of her. I want you to teach them Spanish. It'll serve them well to learn Spanish. Of course, I see your English needs practice and I will help you. When Soko left the Macintosh home, her entire perspective of the scary Americans changed, and in one quick moment she understood that people are people. When Anne offered her the job, she accepted without hesitation. The Macintosh family treated Soko like an equal, like family. Anne always sent her home with gifts, especially candy during Halloween and ornaments for Christmas. One Christmas, Anne gifted the Ochoa family a new 52-inch flat-screen TV, something most of the wealthy families didn't have. In turn, Soko used her teaching skills to be more than a nanny. She was a teacher to those children and taught them math, science, and of course Spanish through the use of fun games. The children thrived and Soko loved the Macintosh family, and they loved Soko. As soon as Cindy and Mallory were ready for school, and assured that they would be accepted at Paradise Valley Elementary, and did all the paperwork necessary because she wholeheartedly wanted the girls to have all the opportunities. Over the years, Soko and Anne became friends. Anne saw Soko as one of her best friends, someone she could trust. Soko met other wonderfully kind American people who cared about her well-being, and she was grateful that teachers from Paradise Valley Elementary and other parents treated her and her daughters with equality, love, and fairness. Soko realized that most Americans are kind and compassionate people. She also realized that, like any other culture, there are unkind abusive people who do not like others because they are different or because they stood in their way and wouldn't think twice to step on them. Sokol kept hearing about such a man, Sheriff Arpaio, who promoted hatred in Arizona towards Mexicans for his own advancement and whose policies would affect her life in unexpected ways. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts for the Katie Suarez Social Justice Podcast based on the 2019 Best Latino Focus Fiction novel Irreversible Damage by J.L. Reese. The series is narrated by actor Mike Gomez. A timely and poignant novel about a young Latina's courage, about personal growth, and following your heart, no matter how costly it may be. Kim Chavez, 
la Plaza de Cultura y Artes.